to This One's a Doozy, and Merry Christmas Eve to all who celebrate. My name is Haley, and on this podcast, my husband Kevin and I talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore, of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world yesterday, today, and long ago. And today, we have something a little bit different for you, as fiction is the name of the game for this extra special episode. In the classic Christmas song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, there was always one line that stood out to me as odd. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long ago. It turns out that the line is not out of place in that song. It's actually a reference to a long-held and beloved Christmas tradition in the Victorian era, where families would gather together on Christmas Eve to tell ghost stories. What began as an oral tradition eventually made its way into the written word, and so folks like you and me can hear some of these classic tales for ourselves today. And I'm sure that you've taken part in this tradition in some way, whether you knew it or not, with stories like A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, a very famous Christmas ghost story, being told from a book or on a screen. There has been a push throughout history since the Victorian era to bring the old tradition to other parts of the world, and to reignite it as a normal holiday activity, and so this is our contribution to those efforts. We have two stories for you today, so snuggle up and prepare for some fictional frights. The Ghost's Summons by Ada Boisson This story comes to us from the public domain, first published in the magazine Belgravia in 1868. Wanted, sir, a patient. It was in the early days of my professional career when patients were scarce and fees scarcer. And though I was in the act of sitting down to my chop and had promised myself a glass of steaming punch afterwards in honor of the Christmas season, I hurried instantly into my surgery. I entered briskly, but no sooner did I catch sight of the figure standing leaning against the counter than I started back with a strange feeling of horror, which for the life of me I could not comprehend. Never shall I forget the ghastliness of that face, the white horror stamped upon every feature, the agony which seemed to sink the very eyes beneath the contracted brows. It was awful to me to behold, accustomed as I was to scenes of terror. You seek advice, I began with some hesitation. No, I am not ill. You require then... Hush, he interrupted, approaching more nearly and dropping his already low murmur to a mere whisper. I believe you are not rich. Would you be willing to earn a thousand pounds? A thousand pounds? His words seemed to burn my very ears. I should be thankful if I could do so honestly, I replied with dignity. What is the service required of me? A peculiar look of intense horror passed over the white face before me, but the blue-black lips answered firmly, To attend a deathbed. A thousand pounds to attend a deathbed? Where am I to go then? Whose is it? Mine. The voice in which this was said sounded so hollow and distant that involuntarily I shrank back. Yours? What nonsense! You are not a dying man. You are pale, but you appear perfectly healthy. You... Hush! He interrupted. I know all this. You cannot be more convinced of my physical health than I am myself. 
Yet I know that before the clock tolls the first hour after midnight, I shall be a dead man. But, he shuddered slightly, but stretching out his hand commandingly, motioned me to be silent. I am but too well informed of what I affirm, he said quietly. I have received mysterious summons from the dead. No mortal can avail me. I am as doomed as the wretch on whom the judge has passed sentence. I do not come either to seek your advice or to argue the matter with you, but simply to buy your services. I offer you a thousand pounds to pass the night in my chamber and witness the scene which takes place. The sum may appear to you extravagant, but I have no further need to count the cost of any gratification, and the spectacle you will have to witness is no common sight of horror. The words, strange as they were, were spoken calmly enough, but as the last sentence dropped slowly from the livid lips, an expression of such wild horror again passed over the stranger's face that, in spite of the immense fee, I hesitated to answer. You fear to trust the promise of a dead man. See here and be convinced, he exclaimed eagerly, and the next instant on the counter between us lay a parchment document, and following the indication of that white muscular hand I read the words, and to Mr. Frederick Keed of 14 High Street, Alton, I bequeath the sum of one thousand pounds for certain services rendered to me. I have had that will drawn up within the last twenty-four hours, and I signed it an hour ago in the presence of competent witnesses. I am prepared, you see. Now do you accept my offer or not? My answer was to walk across the room and take down my hat, and then lock the door of the surgery communicating with the house. It was a dark, icy cold night, and somehow the courage and determination which the sight of my own name in connection with a thousand pounds had given me flagged considerably as I found myself hurried along through the silent darkness by a man whose deathbed I was about to attend. He was grimly silent, but as his hand touched mine, in spite of the frost, it felt like a burning coal. On we went tramp tramp through the snow on on till even i grew weary and at length on my appalled ear struck the chimes of a church clock whilst close at hand i distinguished the snowy hillocks of a churchyard heavens was this awful scene of which i was to be the witness to take place veritably amongst the dead eleven groaned the doomed man gracious god but two hours more and that ghostly messenger will bring the summons. Come, come, for mercy's sake, let us hasten. There was but a short road separating us now from a wall, which surrounded a large mansion, and along this we hastened until we reached a small door. Passing through this, in a few minutes, we were stealthily ascending the private staircase to a splendidly furnished apartment, which left no doubt of the wealth of its owner. All was intensely silent, however, through the house, and about this room in particular there was a stillness that, as I gazed around, struck me as almost ghastly. My companion glanced at the clock on the mantel shelf and sank into a large chair by the side of the fire with a shudder. Only an hour and a half longer, he muttered. Great heaven, I thought I had more fortitude. This horror unmans me. 
then in a fiercer tone and clutching my arm, he added, Ha! You mock me! You think me mad, but wait till you see! Wait till you see! I put my hand on his wrist, for there was now a fever in his sunken eyes which checked the superstitious chill which had been gathering over me and made me hope that, after all, my first suspicion was correct and that my patient was but the victim of some fearful hallucination. Mock you, I answered soothingly. Far from it. I sympathize intensely with you and would do much to aid you. You require sleep. Lie down and leave me to watch. He groaned but rose and began throwing off his clothes, and watching my opportunity, I slipped a sleeping powder, which I had managed to put in my pocket before leaving the surgery, into the tumbler of claret that stood beside him. The more I saw, the more I felt convinced that it was the nervous system of my patient which required my attention, and it was with sincere satisfaction I saw him drink the wine and then stretch himself on the luxurious bed. Ha, thought I, as the clock struck twelve, and instead of a groan, the deep breathing of the sleeper sounded through the room. You won't receive any summons tonight, and I may make myself comfortable. Noiselessly, therefore, I replenished the fire, poured myself out a large glass of wine, and drawing the curtains so that the firelight should not disturb the sleeper, I put myself in a position to follow his example. How long I slept I know not, but suddenly I aroused with a start and as ghostly a thrill of horror as ever I remember to have felt in my life. Something, what I knew not, seemed near, something nameless, but unutterably awful. I gazed round. The fire emitted a faint blue glow, just sufficient to enable me to see that the room was exactly the same as when I fell asleep, but that the long hand of the clock wanted but five minutes of the mysterious hour, which was to be the death moment of the summoned man. Was there anything in it then? Any truth in the strange story he had told? The silence was intense. I could not even hear a breath from the bed and I was about to rise and approach, when again that awful horror seized me, and at the same moment my eye fell upon the mirror opposite the door, and I saw, great heaven, that awful shape, that ghastly mockery of what had been humanity, was it really a messenger from the buried, quiet, dead? It stood there in visible death clothes, but the awful face was ghastly with corruption, and the sunken eyes gleamed forth a green glassy glare which seemed a veritable blast from the infernal fires below. To move or utter a sound in that hideous presence was impossible, and like a statue I sat and saw that horrid shape move slowly towards the bed. What was the awful scene enacted there I know not. I heard nothing except a low, stifled, agonized groan, and I saw the shadow of that ghastly messenger bending over the bed. Whether it was some dreadful but wordless sentence its breathless lips conveyed as it stood there, I know not, but for an instant the shadow of a claw-like hand, from which the third finger was missing, appeared extended over the doomed man's head, and then, as the clock struck one clear silvery stroke, it fell and a wild shriek ran through the room, a death shriek. 
I am not given to fainting, but I certainly confess that the next ten minutes of my existence was a cold blank, and even when I did manage to stagger to my feet, I gazed round, vainly endeavoring to understand the chilly horror which still possessed me. Thank God the room was rid of that awful presence. I saw that, so gulping down some wine, I lighted a wax taper and staggered towards the bed. Ah, how I prayed that, after all, I might have been dreaming, and that my own excited imagination had but conjured up some hideous memory of the dissecting room. But one glance was sufficient to answer that. No, the summons had indeed been given and answered. I flashed the light over the dead face, swollen, convulsed still with the death agony, but suddenly I shrank back. Even as I gazed, the expression of the face seemed to change. The blackness faded into a deathly whiteness, the convulsed features relaxed, and even as if the victim of that dead apparition still lived, a sad, solemn smile stole over the pale lips. I was intensely horrified, but still I retained sufficient self-consciousness to be struck professionally by such a phenomenon. Surely there was something more than supernatural agency in all this. Again I scrutinized the dead face, and even the throat and chest, but with the exception of a tiny pimple on one temple beneath a cluster of hair, not a mark appeared. To look at the corpse, one would have believed that this man had indeed died by the visitation of God, peacefully, whilst sleeping. How long I stood there I know not, but time enough to gather my scattered senses and to reflect that, all things considered, my own position would be very unpleasant if I was found thus unexpectedly in the room of the mysteriously dead man. So as noiselessly as I could, I made my way out of the house. No one met me on the private staircase. The little door opening into the road was easily unfastened, and thankful indeed was I to feel again the fresh, wintry air as I hurried along that road by the churchyard. There was magnificent funeral soon in that church, and it was said that the young widow of the buried man was inconsolable, and then rumors got abroad of a horrible apparition, which had been seen on the night of the death and it was whispered the young widow was terrified and insisted upon leaving her splendid mansion. I was too mystified with the whole affair to risk my reputation by saying what I knew, and I should have allowed my share in it to remain forever buried in oblivion had I not suddenly heard that the widow, objecting to many of the legacies of the last will of her husband, intended to dispute it on the score of insanity and then there gradually arose the rumor of his belief in having received a mysterious summons. On this I went to the lawyer and sent a message to the lady that, as the last person who had attended her husband, I undertook to prove his sanity, and I besought her to grant me an interview in which I would relate as strange and horrible a story as ear had ever heard. The same evening I received an invitation to go to the mansion. I was ushered immediately into a splendid room, and there, standing before the fire, was the most dazzlingly beautiful young creature I had ever seen. She was very small, but exquisitely made. Had it not been for the dignity of her carriage, I should have believed her a mere child. 
With a stately bow, she advanced, but did not speak. I come on a strange and painful errand, I began, and then I started, for I happened to glance full into her eyes, and from them down to the small right hand grasping the chair. The wedding ring was on that hand. I conclude you are the Mr. Keed who requested permission to tell me some absurd ghost story, and whom my late husband mentions here. And as she spoke, she stretched out her left hand towards something. But what I knew not, for my eyes were fixed on that hand. Horror, white and delicate it might be, but it was shaped like a claw, and the third finger was missing. One sentence was enough after that. Madam, all I can tell you is that the ghost who summoned your husband was marked by a singular deformity. The third finger of the left hand was missing, I said sternly, and the next instant I had left that beautiful, sinful presence. That will was never disputed. The next morning, too, I received a check for a thousand pounds, and the next news I heard of the widow was that she had herself seen that awful apparition and had left the mansion immediately. The end. Smee by A. M. Burridge. This story comes to us from the public domain, first published in 1931 in a collection of stories in a book titled Someone in the Room. No, said Jackson, with a deprecatory smile. I'm sorry, I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that because you'll have plenty without me, but I'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve, and we were a party of 14 with just the proper leavening of youth. We had dined well. It was the season for childish games, and we were all in the mood for playing them. All that is, except Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was a rapturous and almost unanimous approval. His was the one dissentient voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile which softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. Why not, someone asked. He hesitated for a moment before replying, I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a door that led to the servant's staircase. When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. She opened the door and jumped and landed at the bottom of the stairs. She broke her neck, of course. We all looked serious. Mrs. Fernley said, How terrible! And were you there when it happened? Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said, but I was there when something else happened. Something worse. What could be worse than that? This was, said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment. Then he said, I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than hide and seek. The name comes from It's Me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of hide and seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. 
Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself or herself. You turn out the lights and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off and search for Smee. But of course, they don't know who they are looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee, and the other player answers, Smee, and they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer, and he will join the first two. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'll happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds like a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? Yes, he answered. I played it in the house that I was telling you about, and she was there. The girl who broke... No, no, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know there were 13 of us playing the game and there were only 12 people in the house and I didn't know the dead girl's name. When I heard that whispered name in the dark, it didn't worry me, but I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to pay my forfeit at once. We all stared at him. His words did not make sense at all. Tim Vouse was the kindest man in the world. He smiled at us all. This sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson, you can tell it to us instead of paying a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson, and here is his story. Have you met the Sangstons? They are cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. It was an old house, with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas... Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and I was only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet Sangston introduced me to the people I didn't know. Then it was time to go in to dinner. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of a tall, dark-haired, handsome girl whom I hadn't met before. Everyone was rather in a hurry, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look at all friendly, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at table. I was sitting next to Mrs. Gorman, and as usual, Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were 12 of us, including the Sangstons themselves. We were all young or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest, and their 17-year-old son Reggie was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when the talk turned to games. He told us the rules of the game, just as I've described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all, if you're going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. I asked how it happened. 
It was about 10 years ago before we came here. There was a party and they were playing hide and seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Mrs. Gorman even made a little joke about living to be 90. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went round making sure all the lights were off, except the ones in the servants' rooms and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared 12 sheets of paper. 11 of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up, then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw that it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle, and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee? Smee. After a while, the noise died down, and I guessed that someone had found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer, so Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jack Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we? He remarked. He lit a match, looked up at the staircase, and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said, and then laughed. That's silly, there's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another and began to count. He got as far as twelve, then he looked puzzled. There are thirteen people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. Of course, there were 12 of us. Jack laughed. Well, he said, I was sure I counted 13 twice. From halfway up the stairs, Violet Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said that he hadn't but I thought there was somebody sitting between Mrs. Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt something odd and unpleasant had just happened and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at each other and we felt normal again. There were only 12 of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon there were 12 people and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to their bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something horrible has happened. We went into the breakfast room. What's the matter, I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course, I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought that perhaps Smee might be there. 
I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee, I whispered. There was no answer. I thought I'd found Smee. While I don't understand it, but suddenly had a strange, cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch and there was nobody there. Now, I am sure I touched a hand and nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagine that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I could see that he still felt shaken. Together, we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm almost sure that it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone out of the game. Something deep inside me was trying to warn me. Take care, it whispered. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack Sangston had counted 13 people instead of 12? Because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Well, we started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever, but it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first, I stayed with the others, but for several minutes, no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of one of the window seats behind a curtain. Aha, I thought, I've caught Smee. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arm. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner of the window seat. Smee, I whispered. There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he or she does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, what's your name? And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came, Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was the tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was, sitting beside me on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the person or persons who have found Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was nobody else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. Perhaps she is one of those cold, clever girls who have a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me, and she's using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit with her. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed likable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her and wanted to know more about her, but now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. 
the feeling of something wrong, something unnatural was growing. I remember touching her arm and I trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then I heard light footsteps in the passage. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain moved to one side and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. Smee whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course, she received no answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. It's Tony Jackson, isn't it? She whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind, Tony. We'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game is beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play it all evening. I'd like to play a nice quiet game, all together beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player. Somebody who ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Mrs. Gorman. After a time, we heard the sound of feet and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Yes, I answered. Is Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You've both got forfeits. We've all been waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't, you mean. I was Smee all this time. But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was pulled back and we sat, looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman and then on my other side. Between me and the wall was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once, then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick and the world seemed to be going round and round. There was somebody there, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman in a trembling voice. I don't think anyone could leave this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remember his unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Someone's been playing jokes, he said. Are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Sometime later, Jack Sangston wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me, and he soon told me the reason. Tony, he said, I suppose you are in love with Mrs. Gorman. That's your business, but please don't make love to her in my house during a game. You kept everyone waiting. It was very rude of you, and I'm ashamed of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was somebody else there. Somebody who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Jack Sangston stared at me. Miss who? He breathed. Brenda Ford, she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Tony, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She was playing hide-and-seek here 10 years ago. 
Thanks for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory stories today. You can subscribe to This One's a Doozy on your favorite listening platform, and we encourage you to. Also, we would love it if you left a five-star review, which helps other people find our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at This One Is A Doozy on Instagram and TikTok, and This One's A Doozy podcast on Facebook. You can also connect with us by email, this one is a doozy at gmail.com. And recently, this is brand new, you can join us on Patreon as well. Just look up this one's a doozy on Patreon and become a patron for just a few dollars a month. That helps to support the program and uh, help us continue putting all of our effort into this podcast. With that, we will see you next week for another doozy. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.